This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You might assume we're both good at presenting to a live audience because of this podcast. But at the end of the day, when we record, it really feels like we're just talking to one another. Presenting information in person in a formal setting to a large audience is something that still makes us really nervous. To prepare for a live speaking event we're hosting together, we turn to our masterclass subscription to not only refine our presentation skills, but to build our confidence in a different kind of public speaking capacity. Between Robin Roberts, Hillary Clinton, and Kevin Hart's expertise, our confidence skyrocketed. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass helps you actually do it. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors. So whether you want to master negotiate with Chris Voss, think like a boss with Martha Stewart, or plan your dream wedding with celebrity event planner Mindy Wise, Masterclass has you covered. There are over 200 classes to pick from, with new classes added every month, like our latest aha moments from Robin Roberts' effective and authentic communication class that we watched before our event presentation. She taught us how to establish a genuine connection with the audience from the start. I'll always be a little nervous before presenting, but Masterclass prepared us in a way that dialed my nerves down and gave me tools to ground myself. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash shrinkchicks. Get 50% off right now at masterclass.com slash shrinkchicks. Masterclass.com slash shrinkchicks. Welcome to Shrink Chicks. I'm Emily Beerley. And I'm Jennifer Chaikin. And we're licensed marriage and family therapists and owners of the therapy group. We're on a mission to make therapy and therapeutic topics more relatable and accessible. So stay tuned, because in order to grow yourself, you gotta know yourself. We are so excited to introduce our guest today, Amanda Clayman, the financial therapist. Amanda is a fellow clinician who specializes in financial and money issues. She, when she's not seeing therapists, she's doing literally everything else. I have no idea how. She's the host of the financial therapy series on Death, Sex, and Money podcast. I'm obsessed. The financial wellness advocate for Prudential. She's a consultant, a coach, and an author. What? a resume. Amanda, hi, we're so happy to have you today. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Wait, so we had said before, first of all, everyone's going to know I had laryngitis. You'll hear it, Amanda. Um, <laughs> if everyone who follows around, hello, welcome. I'm back, sort of talking today. Sort of um, back. Yes, but I was so excited to have you on. It's such an interesting thing because I know with a lot of my clients, one of the most interesting things I'll find is people will talk about trauma and shame. And then two years later, we'll talk about money. Like that's how prevalent shame is when it comes to our finances. So your specialty makes so much sense because when you think about it, money, our feelings about money are so deeply embedded in our lives and daily decision makings and our processes. So we and our audience, we want to know how did you get beginning with this specialty and this work? Well, the funny thing is, it surprises me not at all that it, it takes a while to come up even in a, a 
you know, active and and close therapeutic relationship. Um, and I think a big part of that is shame. Certainly in the individual feels reticent to bring it up because it feels so huge. But I also think that it's because we don't go looking at our money for personal meaning. Or if we find personal meaning in our, our money, we think that it's misplaced. Um, because our society is so inhibited in and limited in what and how we think about and understand what money is in our lives. We really think that it is supposed to be this land of of pure rationality and anything else that that affects that, our ability to make sort of a, you know, what to decide on exactly what the numbers say feels like, oh, that shouldn't be there. So so we are not encouraged to look at it. And I think that that's that's such a loss because money is such a a rich and dynamic and personal area of our lives. I think it it makes sense that it wouldn't come up in therapy until two years later or because we don't tend to associate like the emotional pieces of it. We just think, oh, okay, it is what it is, you know, almost like when we very much believe that our thoughts are automatically true right? Like Mm -hmm. if we're having a thought, we believe, oh, that that thought must be true because I'm having it. And so we think like, oh, I have this money and it's like very rational. I can look at it. This is what it looks like. I don't think we tend to think about the emotion that's associated with it, or that's also the emotion or the ideas about money that's also been passed down in our families um, and how that affects us and how we see money. Yes, exactly. And I really feel like this this is what financial literacy is truly about. It's about emotional literacy with money and understanding that most financial decisions are are really not that hard. I mean, one can sort of get expert advice. There are lots of resources to get information. Um, but it's the reasons why we don't seek out information, why we don't feel empowered to make a decision, why we feel so anxious about money in general and and whether that comes from a fear of, of making a mistake and getting it wrong, whether that feels like, oh, this isn't something that somebody like me is supposed to even decide um, or making a decision here is going to like if if I'm doing something for my own financial well-being, somehow someone in my life is going to be threatened by that. Like all of these things are are issues and challenges and dilemmas that are embedded in our lives and money is just sort of the visible tip of that. And that's sort of as a clinician why I really find money such a wonderful place to explore is because in my view, it's kind of where our internal world meets our external world. And I think we can all learn how to be better navigators of that space. We all need that. I love it. I'm watching you guys just nodding like, yeah, because we we are both like, honestly, before we came on here, we were like, I cannot wait to talk to Amanda, because we probably need this ourselves. Everyone needs it. It's not in in my opinion. It's not money problems are, are not an indication necessarily that something is wrong with us, or even something that is wrong with our money, money and in my view, is really often the thing that's pointing us toward where we need to grow as people, because money is mapped onto basically everything we do, right? Like how we earn money, like what we choose to do as a profession, um, how we share power and responsibility in our relationships, like who we're friends with, etc. So 
when something is showing up as a money problem, I like to look at that as opening on the door into a world that that can be sometimes hard for us to access um, in terms of like, it's hard to say like, we need to raise your self-esteem by 10%. Um, but it's another thing to be like, here's a place where you don't feel like you have self-efficacy and let's look at ways to, to learn better self-efficacy in this domain of your life. And that can actually have a really transformational effect. Wow. Well, it's interesting because something we also talk about in eating disorder work, which I do a lot of, is that sometimes when you get in recovery of your eating disorder, you can go into like financial anorexia, where you start controlling your money and being so hyper aware of your spending as another thing to restrict. So we can start to see it go out and all these other ways but you're right like the pervasive shame that as we goes with that we start to like really think about our worth and how we are as functioning humans when it comes to money yes absolutely like how we in the world of meaning and self-regulation there's so much sort of there's so much complexity, I think, that we're trying to account for in terms of how we make decisions and how we guide our behavior. And I, I also, it's funny, I have a lot of clients who come to see me who come from a disordered eating background. And, and anything that's what's considered kind of a process disorder where we can't physically abstain from it we have to learn a way to self-regulate and to work with it. Um, you are absolutely right in that so many of the same kind of like um, compulsions and needs to control something or to measure something are often going to show up in money. So we have to get into questions because there are so many. There's so many. <laughs> so, so many to the point where like they had to be edited through. So we're going to throw some out and like see what comes. Yeah. Does that work for you? Yes, Absolutely. All right. So let's, let's go. Like, um, here's a really great one. Let's start with somebody had asked him, how do I let go of financial anxiety that was reinforced by a parent in my childhood? I now feel like it is a burden to spend as little money as possible. And I micromanage all of my money. So I identify this with this question a lot, because this was actually the issue that brought me into going, huh, what are all these feelings I have about money? Like literally they were outside of my awareness. I didn't know how um, controlled I was by anxiety and how much I used my anxiety to dictate my financial choices and behavior until I started sort of, I had this moment where it was like, I saw the matrix all of a sudden, like the code, the emotional code that was running through my financial life. Um, so in terms of, of, anxiety and what we pick up from our, our parents, I'll, I'll kind of answer that in two parts. Number one is to reframe the anxiety and sort of think about the role of anxiety in our, our human experience. And a lot of times we think of anxiety as the indicator light that something is wrong. And I think when it comes to money, especially, we need to think about it as a signal to pay attention, that this is our brain and body's way of going, hey, something is happening here that that may be a problem now or or down the road, or maybe this is something that is causing you to feel some cognitive dissonance and like you're doing something that isn't consistent with who you think you are as a person or what makes a good person, et cetera. Um, 
And anxiety's job is to bring that into awareness, to feel bad enough <laughs> that will come out of our sort of automatic operation um, and, and look at it. But anxiety's job is not to be the arbiter of whether something is or is not a problem. So we need to, to appreciate and honor anxiety's job of going, oh, okay, anxiety, I hear you. I'm paying attention to this. And now I'm going to try to soothe that that anxious response and kick this problem or decision upstairs so that I can evaluate it and and really sort of reality test it and see how much of this is something that I need to to work on. Or maybe the other piece of that is is maybe this is old anxiety. Maybe this is just something that is part of my kind of original programming that in my family, money anxiety was either something that was relevant to those circumstances and was a reasonable response to the kind of danger or threat that we were under. Or maybe that anxiety is just kind of part of my family's my family's intention to set me up with some rules that would keep me safe. Because a lot of times that anxiety is about like you just say no to things. Saying yes to things is dangerous. Saying yes to things is going to get you in trouble. So you just have a default no. And that's how you guide yourself. But that kind of original programming is maybe not the kind of life that you want to live as an adult, or it is having some negative impact on your life. And so now you're in a position where you're aware, it's, it gets so meta, because like now you're aware of the anxiety, like the anxiety signals you, and then you're like, ooh, and now I'm signaled by being aware of my anxiety that this is something that I actually want to look at and examine and explore in my life. So it's a starting point. It's not the end point. Anyone else feeling like the mental load of making dinner, the planning, the shopping, the prep, figuring out the timing? It's a little heavy to carry, huh? Same. That's why I am so grateful for Hungry Root. The food quality, simple recipes, true tastiness, and delivery right to my door is truly a game changer. When getting started, you take a fun, short quiz and Hungry Root will get to know you, what you like to eat, and more. Then they'll build you a personalized cart with all your grocery needs for the week and give you delicious recipe recommendations to put those groceries to use. So you can sit back, relax, and offload the many steps of meal planning. Each order is fully customizable so you can take their suggestions or choose anything you want. They've got fresh produce, high-quality meat and seafood, healthy snacks, smoothies, sweets, ready meals, kids' snacks and meals, vitamins, supplements, much more. My favorite item from my latest box was the honey citrus chopped salad, lemon pepper chicken, and the four cheese tortellini. You gotta try it for yourself. Everything from Hungry Root follows a simple standard. It's gotta taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole trusted ingredients. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Shrink Chicks listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash ShrinkChicks to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash ShrinkChicks. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. 
Did you know that billions of plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles end up in landfills every year? I used to contribute to that waste, constantly buying single-use plastic cleaning products without giving it much thought. But then I discovered Blue Land, and it has been a game changer. Blue Land has helped me eliminate the need for single-use plastic and the products I reach for the most. They are reinventing cleaning essentials. Their approach is simple yet revolutionary. Refillable cleaning products with a sleek design that not only looks great on your counter, but also reduces plastic waste significantly. What I love most is the convenience. With Blueland, I never worry about running out of cleaning supplies or lugging bulky bottles from the store. From hand soap to toilet bowl cleaner to laundry tablets that each smell incredible, all Blueland products are made with clean ingredients you can feel good about. I was blown away when I received my first Blueland order. I immediately filled the bottles with water and their tablets, which was so easy to try everything out. And the ingredients are clean, the scents are refreshing, and the packaging is just so cute. Blueland is trusted in over 1 million homes, including mine. If you're you're ready to make a positive change for the planet without sacrificing cleanliness or convenience, Blueland has you covered. Blueland has a special offer for our listeners. Right now, get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash shrinkchicks. You won't want to miss this. Blueland.com slash shrinkchicks for 15% off. That's blueland.com slash shrinkchicks to get 15% off. It makes so it makes so much sense. And it really, I, I think that, you know, a lot of the people that wrote in, there was a lot of anxiety, you know, they came with money that was reinforced by family. Um, a lot of people mention kind of a scarcity mindset, like this one question, uh, mm -hmm. scarcity mindset, despite mathematically having money, does that kind of connect with the anxiety? Can you explain a little bit about what a scarcity mindset is? Yes, a scarcity mindset it, it taps into some very deep biological hardware, again, around our, our brain's primary job in shaping our, our choices and behavior is to keep us safe, not to make us happy, not to make us thrive or grow, but to keep us safe. So scarcity mentality is really coming to a very basic definition of safety, which says I need to, any resource that's in my life, I need to hold on to it and hoard it because I don't know when the next resource is going to come. And and that is maybe something that worked fairly well in a hunter-gatherer type of situation, but it's not the definition for necessarily how opportunities come and go in our lives. And it often means that we can't aspire to greater opportunities because we're so focused and we can't let go and we fill our lives with things that are are really not a reflection of our best selves. Um, and so when I see scarcity mentality, a lot of times that that shows up as not being able, like for freelancers, for example, like not being able to turn down work, um, not being able to raise their rates because they're afraid that they will lose clients. So it's almost like you you feel like you don't have enough and then you create conditions of not enough that reinforce that feeling. Um, so it's a dangerous place to get stuck because often what we need, like sometimes I, I say we can't get a different output without getting different inputs. And sometimes what we need is help or support or we need to take a leap that feels really scary to us. And we need somebody there who's going to kind of soothe us and encourage us through something that feels really challenging in terms of the discomfort of growth. 
Did that address the question? I feel like I went a little bit in a philosophical. It really does. No, I think I think that's really really helpful. And I wonder, you know, in your work, if you see, you know, people who have a scarcity mindset, how do you see that affecting them? Like, how will that play out in their lives? There's usually so much attendant fear. So it's like the brain just gets stuck in constant vigilance and scanning for danger. And what we prepare ourselves to see is usually then what we pick up on. Like if we're looking constantly for danger, we're going to be alert to every tiny indication that something might go wrong um, or go poorly. And, And so people who have the scarcity mentality often are really exhausted by it and want desperately to change it and hope for something better, but can't see a way to get from point A to point L along the right. It's like they can't see the B, C, D, E, et cetera. Um, and, and that's so it's not like we can magically snap out of a scarcity mentality. We really have to be able to learn to tolerate the anxiety that is the hallmark of it and move in these small increments and, and keep ourselves like that's so much of the, the work that I do is is helping people tolerate the feelings so that they can make incremental behavioral changes that allow them to experience these shifts that we're talking about, um, because it's not it's not like you have some magical goodwill hunting moment, you know, where it's like not my fault oh my god and i'm i'm cured um there's so much more in like like let's look at the knowable facts like let's look at how money is working in your life let's look at some opportunities for like what could be a shift like what if all of your new clients who are coming to you you raised your rate like Old clients get to stay at the old rate. You don't have to pitch this change to them if that feels like too much. But we're going to try to establish a new sort of rate. And I have a a friend, Cindy Gallup, who has the best advice for fee setting and raising rates. She says, ask for the biggest amount of money that you can without laughing. <laughs> and I love that. Oh, my God. I love like that nervous laughter. Yes. <laughs> That is so funny. <laughs> it's so perfect and actionable. <laughs> yes. Well, but it's also, but everything you're talking to, it's right because it's just none of it is sustainable to live your life this way, right? And I think a lot, it's interesting to think about some of the intergenerational trauma. Like I always think about my grandmother during the Holocaust that like when she passed away, the money hidden everywhere. Mm-hmm. everywhere all these different accounts everything thrown about and like and I see my mom do it as well like it's really interesting these things that have just been passed down about what we need to do with money yes absolutely and I think that it helps like when people are beginning money work a lot of times there's there's anger but there's also guilt and shame attached to that anger we we see our parents as as guilty or or at fault for the things that we wish the deficits that we have that we wish that they they had somehow filled in a different way so we could avoid it um we see our parents as wrong and it's it's frustrating because we are so um 
because of this cultural taboo about talking about money, we don't know what other people are doing. So we we have no idea how normal our circumstances are or are not. Um, and But if we think of these sort of intergenerational cultures or lessons or messages around money, I think it's it's helpful if we frame them as coming from a place of good intention, that this is really like when we're thinking of like most of our, our decisions that we make in life, but specifically about money, happen really automatically, right? Something feels right, or it's based on our how we normally make decisions. We don't like run an algorithm about like, is this the right price for a hot dog? Like if we're hungry and we have the money and this seems reasonable, we'll probably just get the hot dog. These, what we're doing when we pass these things on is trying to set the younger generation up to be able to recognize and understand how money works in an intuitive way, to be able to move kind of seamlessly. So it's like if money is scarce. We teach children that money is scarce, that you have to be careful that these that if you consistently make decisions, try to do it with the understanding that it's hard to get money. And and that comes from a good place, but we can't always determine whether the lessons learned in childhood are going to be a good fit for the kind of life circumstances that you happen to have or the kind of life circumstances that you want as an adult. Which makes and, and it makes so much sense, you know, if you're growing up in a family where um, kind of the financial mindset was something that was really helpful for your family, right? Like it was something that, you know, maybe your parents were thinking or passing down for a very specific reason. But as you grow up and things are different and you have a different family and we hold on to those ideas and messages, ones that maybe aren't as helpful for us in our lives now. And I think we do that in so many ways and it makes so much sense putting it in the context of money to be able to say, okay, well, what works for me now, right? Where once maybe it was survival for your family or, or that was something that um, was really helpful helpful. It helped you get through your childhood and, you know, go to school. And so, mm-hmm. so it, especially because in our society, we don't talk about money. If that's our only thing to compare it to, right. If we only have our family and those messages and that I think that making that change, it, it becomes really, really difficult for people because it's like, okay, well, if I make this change, what's going to happen? Right. Yeah. Um, so much sense. It's just a great question. Oh, no, Amanda, go. (laughs) No, I was just going to kind of like, I have so much affection and compassion for these problems. Um, I feel like we're, we're just so blind um, in terms of being able to recognize money problems. And, And to be clear, there are obviously like concrete challenges. I I want to make a I want to differentiate between like the problems that we experience where where we feel like we're getting in our own way or like something just isn't working in our financial life versus really like problems of of poverty, systematic oppression, like economic oppression, like there there are concrete real, real world problems that are not in one's head, if you will. Um but culturally that cultural aspect of money um, is a place where one of the things that I 
want to do besides helping people individually is to help change the culture of money so that we have a healthier culture so that more so that fewer people end up having these kinds of issues. So then I have a question for you. So then like, Mm -hmm. what would your advice be? Like if you could do that, like if there's one thing every person could hear money, what would you say to them? I would encourage people to look at money as a lens through which they can understand themselves and their lives, that money is truly integrated into who we are as people. And that but what does that mean? Like, how do we translate that into sort of like, how do we recognize it in our lives? Right. I think having a practice with money, like a reflective practice with money and being able to be intentional with our choices and behavior um, and to be able to to do that in the present, but also in the long term is for me, the definition of of financial health, like to be able to like with cash flow and and budgeting, for example, like I feel like if you're sitting down at least once a month and reviewing, predicting and planning with your money, like review what comes in, what goes out, um, sort of look at these categories, think about that as embedded in your life, like looking at your calendar, like where was I? What was I doing? What was I going through? Huh, this is different this month. I wonder why it was different this month. And then predicting is being able to look at things that are coming up, like, you know, in the regular times, like maybe we needed to travel for a wedding um, or we were going to have a period between work projects where we wouldn't have income. And then being able to do the planning piece of it, which is what is it in terms of my choices and behavior that I need to do in order to sort of either like reduce, like if I'm going to go into debt in this period, instead of just closing my eyes and using my credit cards to be like, all right, I'm going to have to go into debt by like a thousand dollars this particular time period. But I'm really, these, this is what I need to do in order to keep it to a thousand dollars. Or this is money that's going to come in. I'm going to want to put this much into long-term savings and this other One, I have this, this, and this that I've been sort of waiting to purchase until this money came in. And so having that practice and being able to sit and go, how's this working for me? Does this feel like a lifestyle that I like? Does it feel like maybe I'm doing things that aren't that important to me and I'd rather put that money somewhere else? Like, it's not like there's an app that can do that for us. It's just going to give us some sort of allocation of our money. That's not intentional. Um, an advisor can help sometimes with sort of filling in the details of of what our picture of the future looks like and what that translates to and to what we need to do today. Um, but ultimately, I think money is really like we tap into the the growth and self-actualization potential of money when we just pay attention to it and learn to kind of like love ourselves and have affection and like humor. Like we're such goofy creatures trying to balance so many different needs in the moment. And we live in this ridiculous complex world where like, I know that my internal programming says, you know what, Amanda, if you're really stressed out and your life isn't working, 
probably if you had a pair of jeans that fit you magically perfectly, then everything else in your life would fall into place. Like, that's ridiculous. Doesn't stop me. It doesn't stop me. I think you might even be able to like see the collection <laughs> as I'm recording here in my closet. <laughs> so you've tried this before. <laughs> but you know what? It's not boats. It's not boats. It's not gambling. Like, Absolutely. This isn't really having a terrible effect on my life. And so I can have, it's kind of like a, you know, this is the place of like affection and acceptance. It's like, yeah, it's ridiculous that I, I do this and that I consistently do it. I know I'm doing it. But like, if it was really a problem, I would work on it. But for now, I'm like, yeah, I just really, I like to have jeans. <laughs> I just right. like my like jeans, man. Yeah. Things aren't a problem yeah. unless they're a problem. Uh, but right. I love, I really love the way in which you talk about acknowledging it. It's just so empowering. And I think a lot of the times when, you know, we're approaching talking about a budget or talking about like our monthly, you know, what we're spending every month that, you know, we'll approach it as it's this very stressful experience or it's something we have to sit down. It feels like homework in some way. The way in which you're describing it sounds just so empowering. Like it gives you another level of, you know, self-efficacy, like, like what you were saying, like it's, it's just the way in which you're reframing it and speaking to it um, is just a different way of looking at being very aware of your money and and paying attention to it. Yeah, I I find it fascinating. I mean, so fascinating that I love to talk to other people about their money all day long because it is it is just where again where our internal self and the external world meet, and it's. It's so like the the there's a question that I often ask people um, when we're we're looking at the the financial challenges in front of them. And I'll say, like, if there was a lesson to be learned here, what do you think that lesson would be? And the answers to that question are so personal and really have so little to do with what is happening if you're just looking at the numbers and what needs to happen for the the situation in, in the numbers to change, if you will. Um, and that is, that is where I just find, because my goal is personal health, wellness, and growth. My goal is not everybody has a fat, you know, investment account. Um, so I just see money as kind of a very... Um, efficient way and a very sort of like um, clear way in terms of like this, the duality of it being both a symbol and a tool for us to be able to really get, get our hands in there, right? When it comes to being who we want to be and having the kind of life that we want for ourselves.
really fun fact about me that you might not know is that if I let my hair dry natural, it is a frizzball mess, which is one of the many reasons I absolutely love pros. I truly never thought that I would be able to embrace my natural hair texture. Ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Less frizzy hair, yes, but beyond that too. My hair is shinier, healthier, and so much more manageable. Filming the podcast every week makes checking out my hair unavoidable, and I have felt so much more confident on camera thanks to pros. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do. The custom shampoo and conditioner combo, plus the hydrating leave-in conditioner and hair oil keeps the frizz at bay. It also makes for the smoothest blowout. People keep asking me if I got my hair cut or went to the salon, which is of course the highest compliment. Pros isn't just better for you. It's better for the planet. They're certified B Corp cruelty free and the first and only carbon neutral custom beauty brand. They even have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and adjusts my formula to keep up with the seasons and changes in my life. I use this feature when I moved to my temporary house in New Jersey, back to my house house post construction project in Pennsylvania. Environmental factors like water source is something that pros takes into consideration with their customization. So it was very cool that I had the ability to update my location. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin, and they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash shrinkchicks. So you get a free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash shrinkchicks. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash shrinkchicks. I am thrilled that the weather is finally warming up here in Philly. I went to switch out my closet the other day from my fall winter wear to my spring summer wear and noticed that I very much needed a refresh. So thank goodness for Quince that allows me to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Now I have a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. I refresh my closet with the high-waisted linen shorts that come in multiple colors and patterns, the comfiest cotton tees, and my latest favorite, the smocked mini dress. And don't miss out on the accessories. Quince has the coolest sunglasses and 14 karat gold jewelry to complete any look. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes, making me feel even better about my purchases. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash shrinkchicks for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash shrinkchicks to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash shrinkchicks. So I think, you know, one thing that we absolutely have to touch on is how it affects relationships because, Mm -hmm. you know, it is a huge thing that couples fight about. It's a huge thing that couples get divorced over. Um, So, and do you, you know, I I guess we could just jump into questions um, because I think that this comes up so much, whether it's in our work, um, you know, in our personal lives. And so (laughs) one of the questions that came up, tips for making the spender saver dynamic work in a romantic relationship. So there is a reason that spenders and savers get together. This is not a cruel trick of fate that you are married to the person who drives you crazy. Um, We, there's a saying, our unconscious picks our partner. And I believe that that comes out of a a desire to be a more well-rounded and well-balanced system. 
So if we tend to look at the world and keeping it to money, um, see any sort of financial imbalance as, oh, no, here's an imbalance. We need to save more. Um, And the spender is often like, oh, no, we don't know what the future is going to hold. We need to make sure that we're enjoying the present. Like we cannot sacrifice the joy of the moment. Um, there, there can be, and so like a, a saver absolutely needs a spender in terms of the person who's kind of watching out for quality of life. Because a saver, if that's kind of the default, and this isn't a rational thing, this is an emotional thing that says, if there's a problem, solve it by sort of tightening up um, versus if there, I love the the balance where there's a person who just wants to get more, like there's the save more and then there's the just get more, but don't come for my savings <laughs> or my spending. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. My husband's like that. And it's, it's shocking to me. Like, it, like I study him, like he's some kind of like, animal specimen like how does your brain just go I'm gonna get more I'm just like any problem means I'm gonna go get more um but in terms of advice I I think when we come back from the framing the question of who is correct here and think of ourselves more as part of a system and who is good or who has strengths in terms of which functions in, in how this system is going to work. Um, and to always, you have to share the same facts. So spenders and, and savers need to be able to come together and look at household finances and say, okay, how's, again, how's money coming in? How's it going out? What are our sort of, uh, what are we predicting? What are, are we planning in order to, to make sure that we're creating the financial reality now and in the future that we want? Um, and, and there can be, I actually have a course on this um, on LinkedIn Learning around financial wellness for couples and families that takes you literally through like a, a step-by-step process of, of figuring out what your individual values are, being able to translate that into concrete terms. Like it's not saving is good. We should save. It's we should be saving this much per month or this much per year in order to reach our goals, um, being able to then translate that into an ask and to be able to negotiate from a place of um, co-giving instead of compromise, like instead of focusing on what we're giving up, think of like what we are giving to our system and what our system is trying to do. And then finally, like how are we implementing that and tracking it? Does that make sense? Yeah, do you get told often that you're the coolest person that anyone's ever met? Or is that just something I'm feeling towards you right now? No, but I will say I'm rubbish at parties because as soon as I introduce myself, people are like, okay, I'm going to tell you like about this crazy thing that's happening in my marriage or how crazy my parents were. And because there's just like, for me, that's an indication of how huge this need is to have better tools and understanding to nego- to navigate our financial lives. It doesn't have to be this terrible, shameful world of no drudgery that I think most people 
expect and therefore look for and therefore kind of manifest. Well, it's like, I mean, it's definitely part of our like politically correct purity culture thing to be like, don't talk about this, right? Where it's so clear, you can even see from your party involvements, we're desperate <laughs> to talk about this. We want to talk about finances and we want to know what's quote unquote normal, even though it doesn't exist. We want to know what other people are doing. Like we're so desperate to talk about this. So here's a great question. Now, now that you've opened it up, that somebody have written in. How to heal from financial infidelity? My spouse hit expensive, uh, excessive spending and debt. Oh, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. It's it's hard on multiple levels, and I would actually like to start with the spouse in who is hiding, um, in terms of of understanding what's happening there. Um, when we hide things from our spouse in in any way but again specifically when it comes to money what we're communicating with that choice is this there's a boundary on intimacy the level of intimacy that I can have with this person because there is a part of me and there's a need that I have that is not safe for me for whatever reasons to share with my partner either because I feel like they would judge me or because this is something that is inherently bad about me, and I don't want them to to know that I have that bad part of me. Um, or this need is I'm judging myself there, and I think this need is stupid, and I don't want to have it. And so I'm not ready to acknowledge it to myself. Therefore, I'm certainly not ready to acknowledge it to this partner. And And again, like here's where our internal world meets our external world. This is an intimacy and relationship problem and a maybe a self-regulation problem or or there are lots of things that it could that could be happening with the individual that is showing up visibly as a money problem. So here is where money is pointing us to a place where we need to heal and grow. Because what happens is that that un unhealed need or compulsion is now has sort of come out of what the individual can manage and control and has sort of come out to the level of the relationship and and created a problem that that needs attention and needs to get addressed. And what's challenging is that now it's a more complex problem because it's not just what the individual is going through. Now there has been this this deception and this breach of trust. And now who knows sort of how that the the aggrieved partner here is going to respond to that based on their own feelings and history and sort of how they relate to this person and how what they believe about trust, et cetera. So I, I think that that the healing comes from being able to not just say, like, what are the financial boundaries? Like, this person can no longer have access to, we're going to put a credit freeze on them so they can't um, open a credit card account. And I'm going to control all the money. Like, like this is not a, a issue that we can solve top down. Or it may solve the money issue, but it's not going to solve the, the limitation on intimacy that this couple has. Um, it's not going to heal whatever is going on with the partner. And I would say that probably any form of like rigid control is not going to be sustainable. The The original partner is going to find some way to subvert that and this is going to repeat itself. Um, so, so coming to a place of like, I love you and 
you have a need or a problem that you can't manage, what happens in our marriage when one of us has a need or a problem that they can't individually manage? Uh, individually manage? How do we? How do we take that? Like, like, do problems only belong to the individual? Do we have the kind of relationship where I don't want to be bothered with your problems, or is that maybe not the kind of maybe that was the problem before? And this person kind of blew that up and created a crisis so that that question would be answered relationally. Um, so so I'll say again, because I think that this bears repeating, money points us toward the places in our lives and relationships where we need to grow. And, and we miss the opportunity when we only solve the financial piece of it and don't look at it as a reflection of who we are, what we're going through, and what we want our lives to be. Hmm. And I think that, that, first of all, that was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think the thing you said about, you know, that the, the, the partner who has betrayed the one kind of holding onto control as a means of like trying to fix, um, you know, what's going on, that being kind of solved from top down. Um, you know, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I think that's, that's a very common thing that happens in any sort of betrayal in a relationship of like, oh, well, I need to hold on to this level of control with, with, without getting underneath, um, you know, what has, has caused the betrayal, um, to, to begin with. And, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, let's say that partner says, okay, well, I'm going to control all the finances, puts up another wall to intimacy, right. Where it, it sounds walls just continue to get built on either end, keeping the couple from really connecting on what's going on underneath, you know, the mm-hmm. infidelity. Right. And how to be a system like these are two individuals who haven't learned how to fit with each other yet in terms of being able to think of themselves as a system as opposed to just two allied individuals. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Marriage is a great place to have to like confront your stuff. <laughs> Or relationships. I don't want to say just marriage, but like relationships bring up our stuff. Totally. Yes. They trigger yes. ev- all of our all of our shit is triggered yeah. in our yes. right. Because if we're mm-hmm. by ourselves, no one else is telling us or triggering that for us for the most right. part. We don't know. It's kind of like with the family, right? Like we don't know how normal or not our family is because we don't have that information. When we get into a relationship with somebody, we're like, oh, I am this person relative to you. Oh, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> or like or like when your partner comes to like a family get together and they start pointing things out and you're like, oh, <laughs> I did not realize oh, that. Wait a second. I should probably oh, take right. my parents off the pedestal I put them right. on many, many years ago. Right. Oh, very good. Okay. Or like my mother, my mother always says, she goes, when I get old, I want Greg, that's my husband. She goes, I want Greg to choose my home. I don't want you to choose my home. You'll be too cheap. I want your husband to be the one Because he'll just make more. Like, he'll just get more in. Go, he'll just get more you in. He'll be cheap. You're the one right, who made me cheat. Right, right. This is your anxiety <laughs> on me. Right. It's like right in front of you. I do this by myself. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I needed somebody what? to tell me it was going to be okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, you needed a Greg. Yes. Yes. 
That's what I'm saying. But he also drives me insane. He drives me insane because he will not like if I try to be like, this is a limit on our money. He's kind of like, but what about and he'll come up with like some extreme or like, so why do you hate the children and not want them to have after school activities? (laughs) If you're not willing to say yes to every after school activity, it's because you hate enriching the children's lives. Oh, wow. Tricky. Yeah, I'm sure it gets you there. I'd probably say that to my husband. <laughs> Why can't she take gymnastics? <laughs> okay. Like, I don't hate it. It's just like maybe not everything and the expensive camp. And like you can't say yes to everything just because it fits into the like the the permissible category of good for the kids. Like something can be good, but it doesn't mean it's unlimited checkbook good, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, see, my my dynamic very much comes out when I go to CVS with my husband, mm-hmm. where I'm just getting the necessities. He's like picking up random foods, like things that we get, you know, CV or Target. I feel like Target's yeah. another good yes. one. Target's right? where like, happens. Target is the highlight of your relationship and how money plays out, right? Like if you're just getting the necessities, then maybe you're a saver. If you're someone who's, who's picking up everything at target, you might be on the other end. I'm telling you, I I know when I, I go in there, I'm like, maybe I'm the person who has this organizer or this little decor. The decor at target is very dangerous. Oh yeah. For me. Oh my God. It's so bad. Emily and I just went. It's bad. It's bad. not good. Well, especially because right now everything's virtual, right? So like, I don't actually have to decorate anything. Only you guys are only seeing a box. Only but a square office. I needed to update it. I needed to, quote unquote, right? Okay, <laughs> we could talk to you for hours, Amanda. You're like the coolest person I've ever met. But let me ask you a question. But have me back. I would love to come back because I can talk about this happily all the time. We will. Do, can we just have you over to talk to yeah. us about it? <laughs> I think we'll be hiring you very soon. Yeah. Okay. But I want to ask a really important question because you talked about something I think that we do need to address, which is we are ignoring people who are genuinely living paycheck to paycheck, which unfortunately yeah. is the reality of our country, specifically the United States. So somebody had written in and said, how do you handle stress and overcome when you're living paycheck to paycheck? So the the approach that I espouse is not just a like wealthy people problems kind of approach. Um, it it works no matter what your your financial situation is because ultimately it it is it helps us differentiate between sort of what is it that we are experiencing and what is the kind of mobilized response that would best help me here versus what's the interpretation the meaning the, the all of the other stuff that we layer on top of that. And when we are living paycheck to paycheck, that is such a stressful place to be in um, that it is vital, I think, that we have some perspective on, again, what the sort of practical needs are and then how we can best take care of ourselves emotionally, psychologically, relationally in that situation as well. So like I have this this worksheet that I created um, 
in an old workshop where it literally is like, are you what I called like just work worried about safety needs, like making sure that you have a roof over your head, that you have food on the table. Um, if you have access to credit, you are still actively uh, incurring debt in that sort of situation versus like right when we get to that that breaking point, that sort of paycheck to paycheck point where we have enough to cover, but we don't have enough to really get ahead. And then after that is where we stabilize, where we have enough to kind of build an emergency fund and we're no longer, oh, but in the last one, we're not incurring any new debt, but we have to still, we're right at that, that balance point versus now we have enough to kind of start making debt repayment, uh, making payments toward debt and being able to save a bit for save a bit for the future versus finally we get to security. We can look at the future. So we come back to just safety. Um, With safety, where we really need to be very active um, with ourselves is looking at our financial decision-making and being able to be reflective and and responsive to the the circumstances versus being reactive because when we're under stress we're more likely to need to do um, self-soothing behaviors which leads to impulsivity a lot of times with money so like when we don't have a way to be able to do that planning and predicting part where we look at what needs are coming up and then come up with a plan for what's going to happen those it's not like those needs evaporate and a lot of times we can only defer them or tell them no for so long before we're going to do something that ends up being self-destructive, like using the Target example. Like we go into Target because there's something that we need, but there are lots of things that we need, but maybe not as much as that one thing that we went in there for. And we have kind of that dissociative splurge moment where our our brain sort of give like a firewall of awareness comes down and then just like spending comes out and we get all of these things that we also need, but we don't know how we're going to pay for it. Um, and not to say that, that I actually think again, looking affectionately at this, I think it's a miraculous thing that our brain does that makes sure that we can get these needs met and then we'll figure out some way to take care of that in the future. Um, but it often feels very disruptive to us to feel like we're not in control in those moments. And and so when we are living paycheck to paycheck, there are strategies that we can do in terms of like in the review predict plan, like here's the money that's coming in. Here's how I know that it's going to go out. Here are the needs that I have. Like let's say my air conditioner is broken and I work from home um, or I really need a new pair of boots and boots are expensive. Um to even have like a list that we keep of all of these different things. So it's not just swirling around in our head, making us vulnerable to that. Like, well, I don't know how I'm going to pay for it, but I just need to get it. So I'm going to get it. Like we can have this receptacle of all of those things um, and then say, what are the circumstances? So maybe if there's a time when I get like a tax refund or if I get money, it, from a family member who's like gifting me something or just anything that's going to get us a little bit ahead that we know, like, does this, we already have a plan for that money of whether or not that's going to go to an emergency fund, to getting some of these things. I mean, I I don't think it's advisable when people are still in that pre 
solvency period before they have enough to kind of at least not be incurring debt, that's not the time to be repaying debt usually. Um, it's better to kind of stabilize yourself, get yourself to a place where you don't need to use your credit cards for those safety needs before you're in a position to be able to to make a change in, in moving yourself toward being debt-free. Does that make sense? Absolutely. <laughs> like, so incredible. Such good information for people. And if you have links to, like, any of these courses or, sure. you know, the yes. worksheets, send them on over because we would love to link them because um, I'm sure that would be so, so helpful for people. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, Great. how can people find you? Because everyone's going to want to find you after yes. this. Yes. It's very easy. It's just, it's my name, Amanda Clayman with a C, um, amandaclayman.com. And you can contact me through my website. There's a, a link to the resources, some of the resources I mentioned, which I'll, I'll make sure that you guys have that. Amazing. Great. Oh, I'm also, I should say, like, I'm on Twitter at Amanda Clay and Instagram at Amanda Clayman. And also, if you um, are a Death, Sex, and Money listener, you can find my financial therapy series in that feed. Perfect. Amazing. Thank you for being here. We're going to link all of that on our social media as well. Amanda, you are amazing. Thank you for coming on today. We cannot thank, thank you. you for having me. I really love chatting with you guys. This is such a fun conversation. So check us out. If this episode was helpful for you or anyone you know, send it on over. You can always rate, review, and subscribe. And we'll be back next week. Amanda Clement, the financial therapist, our new idol and guru. Thank you for being here. (laughs) We love you all very much.